Chapter 4. What is New Age Humanism? Although it is possible that Christians have been seduced by New Age concepts, yet it is wrong to identify someone as a New Age humanist simply because he or she uses terminology stolen by New Age advocates. After all, it's equally possible that some Christians who believe in a kingdom theology are not being seduced because they may fully understand that New Age humanism is man-centered while kingdom theology is Christ-centered in the most biblical sense. They also know, as we hope to demonstrate, that New Age humanism is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God. What, then, would someone have to believe in order to be labeled a New Ager? We've chosen four foundational presuppositions of New Age philosophy, but there are many more New Age concepts that we will not critique. One New Age principle that seems to get tremendous attention in this debate is an optimistic view of our earthly future. Since this is a crucial topic for Dave Hunt, a number of our latter chapters are devoted exclusively to the subject. Optimism is not, however, a prerequisite for someone to be a New Ager, although it is a prominent strain in the movement. There are plenty of pessimists who are part of New Age humanism. Jeremy Rifkin is one of them. The following New Age criteria separate the New Agers from the broad spectrum of evangelical Christianity. 1. Monism, pantheism. God is an impersonal, undifferentiated oneness, not separate from creation. 2. Divinization. Humanity, like all creation, is an extension of this divine oneness and shares its essential being. Thus, humanity is divine. 3. Higher consciousness. Transformation of humanity is brought about through techniques that can be applied to mind, body, and spirit. 4. Reincarnation, karma. Salvation is a multi-lifetime process of progression or degression. Anyone who holds all four of these doctrines has adopted a New Age religion. You cannot believe these four doctrines and remain an evangelical Christian. On the other hand, if you do not believe in any of these doctrines, you cannot possibly be a New Ager. We hope to force the debate beyond the rhetoric of New Age humanism and get down to biblical specifics. The debate is being obscured by the constant reference to New Age seduction. 1. Monism, Pantheism God is an impersonal, indifferentiated oneness, not separate from the creation. This one identifying mark sets off the Orthodox Christian from the Orthodox New Ager. The Christian believes in a personal God who is separate from his creation. This is called the creator-creature distinction. In contrast to many Eastern religions, which teach that God is part of the creation, Christianity teaches that God did not create the world out of himself, using the stuff of his own being to bring the universe and man into existence. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Hebrews 11.3, compare Genesis 1.1.2. The Creator-Creature Distinction One of the distinguishing marks of Christian Reconstruction is the Creator-Creature Distinction. Cornelius Van Til, whose apologetic methodology is the foundation for much of Christian Reconstruction's thinking, makes this concept abundantly clear in his introductory work on apologetics, The Defense of the Faith. So I point out that the Bible does contain a theory of reality, and this theory of reality is that of two levels of being, first, of God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and second, of the universe as derivative, finite, temporal, changeable. 
A position is best known by its most basic differentiation. The meanings of all words in the Christian theory of being depend upon the differentiation between the self-contained God and the created universe. The history of non-Christian philosophy shows that it is built upon a monistic assumption. It has no place in its thought for the basic differentiation that is fundamental to a true Christian metaphysic. Greek philosophers, together with all men, were descendants of Adam. As sinners, they were as anxious to suppress the creator-creature distinction as are all other sinners. They simply assume that all reality is at bottom one. That is, they assume that God does not have incommunicable attributes. When Thales said that all is water, he gave evidence of this monistic assumption. The creator-creature distinction is a theological pillar in the writings of Dr. Greg L. Bonson, Reverend Ray Sutton, David Chilton, R.J. Rushdooney, and Dr. Gary North, all of whom hold to an optimistic eschatological position called postmillennialism, and all of whom could be identified as reconstructionist. There is nothing in any of their writings that would suggest that man ascends the great chain of being and becomes one with God, or that the creation in some way is a part of God. Gary North writes about the creator-creature distinction in these terms. There is a basic difference between God and the universe, between God and man. Man is a created being. No man stands alone. No man stands independent of God. No man merges into God either. God tells us very specifically that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Isaiah 55.8 Why not? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55.9 Having said all this, we should not forget that God is also imminent. He is present with his creation. While God is not a part of creation, as in pantheism, he has not removed himself from the created order, as in deism. God came to meet with Moses on the mountain, to give him the commandments. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Exodus 19.3.5 The psalmist writes, Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. Psalm 139, 7-10, compare Jeremiah 23, 23-24. God is specially present with his people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God, whenever we call upon him, Deuteronomy 4, 7. Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, promising that he would be with us, as always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28.20. Of course, the Holy Spirit came from heaven to be with us, Acts 2.2. In sum, God is with us, imminent, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Our physical bodies serve as the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16. God is so near that he can hear our words and judge our actions. Peter accused Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5.3. He went on to say, You have not lied to men, but to God, verse 4. The transcendence, God is distinct from us, and eminence, God is near to us, of God are not contradictory concepts. 
Immanence is consistent with God's transcendence, omnipresence, and omnipotence. John Frame writes, Those two attributes do not conflict with one another. God is close because he is Lord. He is Lord and thus free to make his power felt everywhere we go. He is Lord and thus able to reveal himself clearly to us, distinguishing himself from all mere creatures. He is Lord and therefore the most central fact of our experience, the least avoidable, the most verifiable. Escape from God's judgment. The New Ager must keep a personal God out of his world. A personal God who sees and judges what man does is banned by those who want to live independent, autonomous, self-legislating lives free from the restrictions of a holy God. He is defined out of existence. When King David was confronted by Nathan with his sin, David's confession brought him back to reality. God sees and judges all things. There is no escape from the gaze of God. Against thee, thee alone, have I sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Psalm 51.4 Here David acknowledges the reality of that guilt and notes two very important factors. First, he notes that the sin is ever before him. It hounds him and pursues him. He sees it wherever he goes. He cannot rid himself of the memory. Like Lady Macbeth, the spot is indelible. Second, he notes that he has done evil in the sight of God. Thus David not only sees his sin, but he realizes it has not escaped the notice of God. Most Americans will not give up God, or at least their view of God. So how do the New Agers allow for God and at the same time deny him? How do they recruit millions of God-fearing Americans to the New Age worldview? One way is to identify the creation and or the creature with God. Yes, there is a God. In fact, you are God. You become the judge and the lawgiver. You, as a God, know what's best for you. In a sense, you can have your God and deny him too. Rudyard Kipling's quip that east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet is obsolete in the world of New Age. The impersonal God of the east has come west. 2. Divinization. Humanity, like all creation, is an extension of this divine oneness and shares its essential being. Thus, humanity is divine. New Agers believe in some form of chain of being or continuity of being, the idea that man and God are one essence, and that in time, through the evolutionary process or reincarnation, man becomes divine, writes Ray Sutton. Life, according to this system, is a continuum. At the top is the purest form of deity. At the very bottom is the least pure. They only differ in degree, not in kind. God is a part of creation. Man, who is somewhere in the middle of the continuum, is God in another form. In other words, God is just a super man, and man is not God, yet. This is an old pagan belief. Modern New Age humanism did not pull it out of thin air. It is the revival of the mythical Olympian gods of ancient Rome. Sutton continues, Such gods were not truly divine in the biblical sense. They were not distinct from the creation. They married, committed adultery with other gods, came down to earth and committed more adultery with people, and so on. They were just an extension of man. We also see this extension of divine oneness in the familiar totem pole image, the organizing symbol of the American Indians, which is found in most religions of the world in some form or another. Again, those who espoused a dominion theology long before the positive confession movement began to pick up the language of visible victory have spoken against the idea of a chain of being, continuity of being, or a little God's theology. 
As was pointed out, the language of some of the positive confession preachers is at best sloppy. But on this little God's doctrine, no one can accuse Christian Reconstructionists of being anything but forthright. They do not believe that man is a little God, that he can become a God, or that man is an exact duplicate of God. Reconstructionists have taught over and over again that there is a fundamental creator-creature distinction. The meaning of deification. We should, however, at least examine how these men use these terms. Some of the most orthodox church fathers used similar phrases, but meant something different from the way present New Agers use them. They, too, spoke of the deification of man in Christ. Athanasius, in a famous statement from his classic work on the Incarnation of the Word, wrote, The Word was made man in order that we might be made gods. David Chilton makes this point. The Christian doctrine of deification, compare Psalms 82.6, John 10.34-36, Romans 8.29-30, Ephesians 4.13-24, Hebrews 2.10-13, 12, 9-10, 2 Peter 1, 4, 1 John 3, 2, is generally known in the Western churches by the terms sanctification and glorification, referring to man's full inheritance in the image of God. This doctrine, which has absolutely nothing in common with pagan realistic theories of the continuity of being, humanistic notions about man's spark of divinity, or Mormon polytheistic fables regarding human evolution into godhood, is universal throughout the writings of the Church Fathers. See, for example, Georgios I. Mentzaridis, The Deification of Man, St. Gregory, Palmas, and the Orthodox Tradition. The term deification was used by some in the early Church to mean sanctification and glorification. Athanasius, one of the most orthodox church fathers in using deification, did not mean that man becomes God or evolves into God. He did not suffer persecution decade after decade from the heretical Arian party because he believed in man into God. He was persecuted because he believed that Jesus was the only God-man over against the Arians who held that Jesus was only man. There was never any consideration that Athanasius ever taught that man evolved into a God. Man, as a new creature in Christ, reflects Jesus' perfect humanity. Man was created as the image of God to reflect his glory. When Adam fell, the image of God was disturbed, though not completely lost. In Christ, we are restored to the image of God, and through our lives, we reflect more and more the image of God. We more and more reflect the glory of God. This increasing reflection of the image of God is called glorification, or in the language of the Church Fathers, deification. The quotations found in Hunt's book under the sections, The Deification of Man, Exact Duplicates of God, a lie whose time has come, and ye are gods, show how negligent some popular teachers and preachers have been. But is Dave Hunt's interpretation of Psalm 82.6 and John 10.34 correct? First, we will look at his interpretation, and then we will compare it with numerous Bible scholars who have written extensive commentaries on the text in question. Hunt on Little Gods Mr. Hunt gives a very good analysis of how man rebelled against God and in his rebellion desired to become a god unto himself. Jehovah's status as a god was rejected. Hunt tells us, and man, taking his cue from Satan, established himself as a rival to God's word. But is this really the point of the passage in Psalm 82, 1-6, especially verse 6, and John 10, 22-39, especially verses 34-38? Hunt thinks so. 
If man is not intended to be a god, then why did Jesus quote Psalm 82.6 to his accusers? He was doing two things. One, demonstrating that he didn't understand their own scriptures, so were in no condition to condemn him for saying that he was God. And two, showing them the depths and horror of their rebellion. Nearly everything that Mr. Hunt says in this passage concerning what Jesus was saying is correct, and we agree with him. As a general analysis of man's rebellion and his attempt to shake off his own creaturehood and sin, Hunt's appraisal of Jesus' statement is quite good. But Hunt's subsequent analysis of the meaning of Jesus' remarks does not fit the context of Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees in John 10, 34-36 and his use of Psalm 82-6. Jesus is not contemplating the Jews of his day, but reminding them of their rebellion against the true God. Indeed, we are gods, just as Jesus said, but it isn't good. Through rebellion, man has broken free from God and is now a little God on his own. It is a terrible thing to be called gods, to be identified with demons who have rebelled against God and are seeking to reign in his place. Jesus was discussing his deity with the Pharisees, something which they denied. He was using a comparison. If something is true in the lesser case, then it stands to reason that it is true in the greater case. He was saying, If you Pharisees really believe the Bible when it states that God ordained rulers under the Old Covenant as gods to whom the word of God came, John 10.35, then how can it be blasphemy for the word who became flesh and dwelt among us to be called God, John 1.1.14. Jesus was not answering the Pharisees on what they thought of themselves. Hunt obscures the meaning of Jesus' battle with the Pharisees. The issue was Jesus' divinity, not the supposed divinity of the Pharisees. Again, Jesus was dealing with who he is based on what the rulers in the Old Testament had been. Hunt even hints at this when he writes, Psalm 82 does not say, Ye shall become gods, as Mormons hope, but ye are gods. So whatever is meant by this statement, it refers to something that humans already are, not to some new status that we will eventually attain. Jesus did not say, They said we are gods. It was God who called them gods, sons of the Most High. This is quite different from the passage Hunt quotes to support his interpretation. I, Satan, will make myself like the Most High, Isaiah 14.14. 14. Here, Satan declared what he wanted to become. The passage in Psalm 82 describes what already is an established fact. Some men are Elohim, gods. The crucial question is, who and what kind of gods are they? Something is going on in this passage that Mr. Hunt fails to see. I wonder how Dave Hunt would respond to Charles Spurgeon's comment on Psalm 82.6. Spurgeon wrote, The greatest honor was thus put upon them, they were delegated gods, closed for a while, with a little of that authority by which the Lord judges among the sons of men. No one would accuse Spurgeon of Mormonism, demonism, or New Age philosophy. It seems that the Hebrew term for gods, Elohim, in Psalm 82 is a reference to those who exercise judicial authority in God's name. Keep in mind that Yahweh, God's personal name, is not used here. It is quite clear by Charles Spurgeon's extended comments on the psalm that this was what he understood the text to mean. It's an interpretation that Hunt fails even to mention. His readers are left with the impression that no other interpretation is even possible than his own, namely that becoming a god in this sense is a wicked thing, a sign of man's rebellion. In fact, nearly every commentator we consulted on Psalm 82 understands that gods has reference to civil magistrates. H.C. Leupold translates the Hebrew Elohim gods as rulers. He goes on to comment, 
This is the last statement God is represented as saying in the assembly of God. What he has said to the judges or rulers was in effect that they were gods. The same word is used which was employed in verse 1. That is, he had given them a position that was analogous to his in that he made them administrators of justice, his justice. If we reread the quotations from the alleged New Age seducer cited by Dave Hunt in The Seduction of Christianity in the light of Leupold's comments and the comments to follow, it's at least possible that these positive confessionists were describing how Christians ought to rule in God's name. Keep in mind that we are not defending these men. We are equally suspicious of what they mean. The reference to gods in Psalm 82.6 is very specific, and any use beyond the limits of the psalm is inappropriate and borders on heretical. Too often we fail to scrutinize the Bible for its own interpretation. Experienced Bible commentators draw on the use of a term and how it is used throughout Scripture to reach their conclusions on what a passage means. Dave Hunt has not done this with respect to Psalm 82.6. Nowhere does he justify his interpretation, either by quoting similar scripture passages or by quoting biblical expositors who are well respected in the Christian community. Therefore, we should not be too quick to look for a novel interpretation when so many capable and gifted men throughout the centuries have understood gods to mean civil magistrates who rule in God's name. Thomas Scott, F.S. Delich, J.J. Stuart Perron, David Dixon, Joseph Addison Alexander, William S. Plummer, John Calvin, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, and Woodrow Michael Kroll all take the position that gods in Psalm 82.6 refers to civil magistrates who rule in God's name. There was only one commentator among those we consulted who took a different view. He offered three possible interpretations, none of which reflected Dave Hunt's view. New Testament commentators interpret John 10, 23-39 in a similar way. The passage refers to the judges of Israel, and the expression gods is applied to them in the exercise of their high and God-given office. This is not an isolated interpretation. Homer Kent, who writes from an eschatological perspective similar to Hunt's, is a representative of the position articulated by the Old Testament commentators listed above. Jesus based his answer on such passages as Psalm 82.6 and Exodus 4.16 and 7.1, where God's spokesmen who minister his word are called gods. His point was that if scripture can term such men gods because they were the agents to interpret divine revelation, how could Christ be a blasphemer by claiming the title Son of God when he was sent from heaven as the very revelation of God himself? In all of our discussion thus far, we have shown that the term gods, Elohim, in the Hebrew refers solely to magistrates, rulers, and judges. The reference is to a God-ordained office. It is not a position that all Christians hold. In this sense, it is inappropriate and exegetically improper to apply this text to all Christians. Thus, since there is so much confusion today over what the psalmist meant in Psalm 82.6, and what Jesus meant in John 10, 34, 36, Christians from all camps should avoid the use of the terms deification, little gods, or anything else that smacks of Mormonism and New Age philosophy. Those within the positive confession camp should work on their Christology and anthropology before they get into any more semantic trouble. Rightly understood, however, Psalm 82.6 shows us that God delegates dominion to some men to rule in his name. The church has always held this position. It has 
been only in recent decades that the church has abandoned this belief, one of the most basic biblical doctrines, dominion under God. George Hutchinson, a Scottish Puritan scholar of the mid-17th century, drawing out the implications of John 10.36 and Psalm 82.6, gets to the heart of the issue when he writes, Albeit magistrates be but men like their brethren, yet in respect of their office they have the glorious title of gods conferred upon them, as being his vice-regents, deputies of a king or magistrate, and as bearing some stamp of his authority and dominion, therefore saith the scripture, I said, ye are gods. This should both engage them to see their qualifications and the exercise of their power and others to reverence and honor them. Rulers must never forget that they must not abandon God as they exercise dominion. The majestic title of Elohim does not allow God's subjects to be a law unto themselves, ruling independent of his lordship over all men and creation. The religion of humanism places man at the center of the universe as an independent sovereign, ruling and overruling according to his self-made law. The psalmist declares their just end. Nevertheless, you will die like men, and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all the nations. Psalm 82.8 No exalted title will save them. 3. Higher consciousness. Transformation of humanity is brought about through the techniques that can be applied to mind, body, and spirit. This is where much of the contemporary Christianity falls into error. We mentioned that Dave Hunt's books should be read on two levels. The first level is his critique of the methods some prominent ministers are using to help Christians get closer to God or to take dominion through verbal authority. Man does not speak anything into existence. God did that during the creation week. The basis of dominion under God is ethics, not magic, obedience, not vocalization. We agree with Dave Hunt when he writes, we do not believe that leaders of the positive confession movement are deliberately involved in sorcery. However, the terminology, while sounding biblical, promotes concepts that cannot be found in the Bible, but are found in occult literature and practice. Moreover, some of the positive confession leaders not only admit, but teach that the methods, laws, and principles they use are also used successfully by occultists. Nowhere in the Bible does it indicate or even imply that the people of God are to use the same methods or powers as the pagans. Dispensationalism's Revolt Against Biblical Ethics We admit that these practices border on the mystical rather than the ethical, but this may not be the result of seduction by a New Age philosophy. The law of God as a standard for a Christian sanctification has not been popular with the church for over a century. When the law of God is jettisoned, some other standard fills the void. David Chilton writes that when an objective standard outside of man is no longer available, Man then relates to God by using magic or manipulative techniques. Metaphysical theology is man-centered, humanistic theology, or more precisely, anthropology. This is why there is such an emphasis on individual experience, and what goes on under the name of evangelism is often more concerned with the subjective feelings of the believer than with the objective gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most prominent doctrines of dominion theology and Christian reconstruction is the belief that the whole Bible is applicable for the Christian today, that man pleases God through obedience, that dominion comes through God's grace, giving us the ability and will to obey his law in love for him and service to man. There are dozens of books written by reconstructionists of one variety or another that support this claim. There is a curious bit of irony here. 
For nearly a century, dispensational premillennialists have been telling us that the Christian is no longer obligated to keep the law of God. As one dispensational writer tells us, the Bible does not give us broad commands to do good to the general public. But broad commands are not enough. Christians are looking for specifics. Keep telling Christians that the law does not matter, and they will find novel ways to please God. The Bible tells us that we show our love to God by keeping His commandments. Dave Hunt, Hal Lindsey, and Jimmy Swaggart are all dispensationalists. They do not believe that the law of God as outlined in all the Bible is appropriate for the Christian to use today. They make a radical division between law and grace, Old and New Testament, and Israel and the church. Millions of Christians were raised on this teaching. The chickens have now come home to roost, and they have now laid some colossal theological eggs. If a person does not keep the law to please God, then he must look elsewhere. So then, the seduction of Christianity has not come so much from the New Agers, who were little known as recently as 1976 when Gary Norse's None Dare Call It Witchcraft first appeared. The seduction of Christianity has been in the midst of the camp of those who are New Age humanists' most vocal critics. Hal Lindsey, a critic of Dominion Theology, has a chapter in his best-selling book, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, 1972, that describes legalism as the Christian's obligation to keep the law. He goes on to write, Legalism, seeking to live for God by the principle of the law, is the first and the worst doctrine of demons. It is the dent in your armor at which Satan will chip away until he has a hole big enough to drive a truck through. I don't know another doctrinal distortion that has been more devastating to believers. The awful thing is that it can sidetrack a mature believer as well as a young one. In fact, this demonic doctrine seems to find especially fertile soil in the life of a growing believer who is intent upon pleasing God in this life. Now, if Mr. Lindsay means by legalism that an individual is justified on the basis of keeping the law, then his warning is justified. But he seems to go beyond this traditional interpretation of the term. If he means that the Christian is not obligated to keep the objective, inscripturated law as a standard of righteousness for holy living, then he is out of accord with the testimony of Scripture. Lindsay tells us that grace emphasizes love as a motivation for obedience and service, but law uses a fear-threat motive. This is only partially true. Perfect love does cast out fear, 1 John 4.18, but this is no open door for lawlessness or the abandonment of the law of God found in Scripture as the standard of righteousness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 110.11, see Proverbs 1.7. We are not given a license to sin that grace might increase, Romans 6.1. Jesus tells us how we can know if we are loving him. If you love me, you will keep my commands, John 14.15. Remember, the law is not the way we are justified by God. The law is, however, an objective standard to which we conform our thoughts, words, and deeds. Paul describes love in Romans 13.8-10 in terms of obedience to the law. One way that you know if you are loving your neighbor is by looking at the law. Paul writes in another place that through faith we established the law, Romans 3.31. But Lindsay is not officially lawless. He tells us that the answer to a righteous and obedient life is to walk in the Spirit and walk by faith in his ability to produce God's righteousness and obedience to his laws within you. What are these laws within you? Where did these laws come from? How are they different from God's inscripturated laws? Lindsay is correct in telling us that it cannot be the conscience for conscience is not a reliable standard of conduct because it can be easily seared. 
Rather, it is the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit. Lindsay even goes on beyond traditional dispensational theology by never telling the Christian that at least he is obligated to keep New Testament commands over against Old Testament commands. Greg Bonson describes this as spiritual antinomianism, a view that teaches that the Christian needs guidance for the holy living expected by God, but it would deny that such guidance comes from a written or verbally defined code. Ethical direction is rather found in the internal promptings of the Holy Spirit. Quite expectedly, such thinking leads quickly to subjectivism in Christian ethics, with each man doing whatever he claims the Spirit has prompted him to do, despite the fact that it conflicts with what the Spirit has prompted others to do, and worse, with what the Spirit has revealed once for all in the Scriptures. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit works through the Word, not speaking or directing from Himself, John 16, 13-15. The Spirit works to fulfill the law in us, Romans 8, 4-9. The abiding of the Spirit in believers brings obedience to God's commands, 1 John 3:24. Denying an objective standard. Some positive confession preachers unwittingly have opened themselves to the subjectivism of the human potential movement, just as Dave Hunt and others have opened themselves to the pessimism that abounds among the humanists. Why? Because neither group has had an objective standard to measure righteousness. Rush Dooney makes this observation. To deny the permanence of God's law is to fall, ultimately, into Manichaeism. Dispensationalists have been telling Christians for over a century and a half that the law of God, as found in the Old Testament and the Gospels, no longer applies to the church today. So where does the church get its law? What objective law word does the church have for the state, meaning civil government? For some, law is based on feelings. The individual has internal promptings that guide him. He looks to himself for direction, to the movement of the Holy Spirit on his or her spirit. Law becomes subjective. What's right for one person might not be right for someone else. The end of such philosophy is that old slogan, if it feels good, do it, or do your own thing. It should not surprise us that some have turned to the subjectivism of the positive thinking movement, think and grow rich, the power of positive thinking, possibility thinking, etc. Furthermore, with this internal-only view of the law, the church cannot address the world on social issues. Dispensationalists also do not have an objective law word for church and society. This is why they have abandoned the world to humanism's power seekers. They have no standard by which the Christian ought to live as he moves in the realms of education, law, politics, and economics. God's law no longer speaks today. It will speak once again only in the Jewish millennium. The church must be content with a natural law ethic. This is evident in dispensational social ethics. Consider the position of Dr. Norman Geisler, a well-respected representative of dispensational theology, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of dispensationalism's leading academic institutions. While premillennialists, especially dispensationalists, do not believe that Christians are living under the Old Testament law today, this in no way means that they are antinomian. To be sure, dispensational premillenarians insist that the Old Testament law was given only to the Jews and not to the Gentiles, and they argue that the Old Testament law has been done away by Christ.
2 Corinthians 3, 7-13, Galatians 3, 24-25. However, most premillenarians recognize that God has not left himself without a witness in that he has revealed a moral law in the hearts and consciousness of men. Romans 2, 14-15. Government is not based on special revelation such as the Bible. It is based on God's general revelation to all men. Thus, civil law, based as it is in natural moral law, lays no specifically religious obligation on man. Is it any wonder that the church has been on the outside looking in? Why are Christians surprised that the world aborts millions of unborn babies every year? Nothing objective is thought to rule the world, least of all God. For the Christian dispensationalists have preached for over a century. The only thing that really matters is the spiritual. Heaven is all important. Christians therefore have retreated from this world psychologically in the face of their declining cultural influence as they wait for the rescue from history promised in the rapture. This pessimism regarding the future of their own earthly efforts has reinforced modern Christian antinomianism, meaning the rejection of God's law as binding in this dispensation. Again, Rush Dooney comments, Antinomianism, having denied the law, runs into mysticism and pietism. As it faces a world of problems, it has no adequate answer. To supply this lack, antinomianism very early became premillennial. Its answer to the problem of the world was to postpone solutions to the any-moment return of Christ. Antinomianism thus led to an intense interest in and expectation of Christ's return as the only solution to the world's problems, Christ's law being denied the status of an answer. Dave Hunt and other critics of Dominion theology and Christian Reconstruction have become pietists, retreating from the social problems of this world. Some positive confession adherents have been seduced by elements of mysticism. What do Dave Hunt and those he criticizes have in common? The denial of the law of God as a standard for righteous living. But many of the positive confession preachers are escaping from this antinomian trap. Dave Hunt's attacks on them are important motivations in this defection from dispensational antinomianism to Christian reconstruction. The law of God is being accepted for what it is, the law of God. The whole Bible is accepted as the standard for righteous living for individuals, families, churches, and civil governments. This is what Christian Reconstructionists have been saying for a number of years, long before New Age humanism became popular and Dave Hunt began to write on the subject. 4. Reincarnation, Karma, Salvation is a multi-lifetime process of progression or digression. New Age humanism makes its leap of being from mere man to God through raising the state of consciousness, evolutionary development, reincarnation, or some combination of the three. Reincarnation has been popularized over the years through the writings of Edgar Cayce and most recently Shirley MacLaine. The Eastern variety of reincarnation would never have been accepted in the Christian West if it had not been stripped of the hideous concept of the transmigration of the soul. Reincarnation, as it is usually understood in Hinduism, states that all life is essentially one, monism. Plant, animal, and human life are so interrelated that souls are capable of transmigrating from one form of life to another. A person could have been an animal, plant, or mineral in some previous existence. This version, however, is unpalatable to American taste. So the movement of human souls is in the newer version limited to human bodies. Modern proponents of reincarnation have cleaned up the Eastern variety. You don't hear Shirley MacLaine telling people that she was a rock or a slug in a former life. 
the typical reincarnationist usually believes that he was once some exotic personality. This is not true reincarnation. This is, I've always been a star, reincarnationism. There are enough able Christian evaluations already on the subject. Suffice it to say that Christian Reconstructionists do not believe in any form of reincarnation, Hebrews 9, 27-28. And this is just the point. No one we know ever hints at believing in reincarnation. Dave Hunt nowhere accuses anyone of believing in it. Yet reincarnation is foundational to New Age humanism. If Reconstructionist theologians are being seduced by New Age humanism, then why haven't they adopted any of its central planks? Why haven't they adopted monism, pantheism, or evolutionism? Who really is an ally of the New Age? It's possible that those who hold to a pessimistic earthly worldview can be seduced by some New Age premises. New Age humanists believe, as John Nisbet says, that it is possible to reinvent the world we live in. Christians who fail to counter this secularized, man-centered, power-oriented religion will find themselves unsuspecting allies with the numerous militant humanist groups. As we have already noted, the humanists fear Christians oriented towards dominion far more than Christians oriented toward defeat. Christians may also be unwitting allies of the New Age in another sense. If Christians retreat from the cultural issues of the day, who will, humanly speaking, visibly control the future course of history? If Christians won't, humanists will. Thus, Hunt's vision of the future becomes the worst kind of self-fulfilling prophecy when it is taken seriously by Christians. Christians retreat because there is no hope. As more Christians retreat, there is less hope. Finally, the whole cultural field is left to humanists who insist on taking us down the road to an international statist utopia. Hunt's critique of Christian Reconstruction and Dominion theology is curiously one-sided. This is partly because his view of the New Age is one-sided. Hunt concentrates on the upbeat, optimistic side of New Age humanism, but there is a pessimistic side as well. Douglas Gruthius, quoted from a California Democratic platform whose wording was based on a New Age transformation platform, 1982. Ultimately, all humanity must recognize the essential interconnectedness and interdependence of all human beings and all of nature. Humanity has no other choice if we are to stop world annihilation. This apocalyptic and pessimistic strain of New Age thinking comes out in some aspects of the thought of Jeremy Rifkin, who is, according to Gary North, largely responsible for New Age infiltration into Christian circles. Rifkin says that the law of entropy destroys the notion of history as progress. Rifkin describes the ecological crisis faced by people in the industrialized countries. We look around us only to find that the garbage and pollution are piling up in every quarter, oozing out of the ground, seeping into our rivers, and lingering in our air. Our eyes burn, our skin discolors, our lungs collapse, and all we can think of is retreating indoors and closing the shutters. Rifkin is hostile to the dominion mandate of Genesis. The fact is, we make a mistake. Our parents made a mistake, and so did theirs. It begins a long time ago when God said to the first of our kind, You shall have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We thought God meant for us to subdue the earth, to become its master. As a result, Christians have been responsible for the exploitation of the earth's resources and have brought us to the mess we are now in. Of course, Rifkin is optimistic that things can change once people stop trying to maintain the existing order and adopt the entropy worldview. 
but there is certainly a pessimistic thread to his argument. In fact, his whole point is to encourage people to adopt his worldview in order to prevent ecological and political disaster. As Gary North says, Rifkin's outlook, if we believe what he says about entropy and the universe, leads to pessimism and retreat, not revolution. Later, North describes him as a man without legitimate hope. Now what happens when Rifkin comes to pessimistic premillennialists telling them that the only way to turn things around is a new economics and a new social order and a new politics? Will all the pessimists be discerning enough to see the evil solution that Rifkin proposes? It is at least possible that the dispensational premillennialism will have prepared conservative Christians to capitulate to Rifkin's new ageism. Conclusion First, the creator-creature distinction is foundational to Christian reconstruction. This is a radically anti-pantheistic doctrine. The idea that man could ever evolve into God is nowhere hinted at in any of the literature published by Christian reconstructionists. Second, Dave Hunt's analysis of Psalm 82 and John 10 is in error. It is not supported by any Bible commentator that we know of. The texts that some apply to all Christians actually refer to man as a magistrate who represents God in the exercise of his high office. Third, Dave Hunt sees no hope for the world because he does not have an objective standard by which to evaluate the world. Thus, the world cannot be directed in the areas of righteousness.